Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. Today we have a super special treat. We have uh, Jennifer Wright, alumni uh, St. John's College. Jen is from Chicago. She's the co-founder of Gloss.com and Bizarre.com's political editor at large. She's also the author of Get Well Soon, History's Worst Plagues and the Heroes That Fought Them. It ended badly. 13 of the worst breakups in history and killer fashion, poisonous petticoats, strangulating scarves, and other deadly garments throughout history. Jennifer Wright, thanks. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, so <clears throat> you went to St. John's. Uh, this was super random. I was telling you before. I've uh, been a big fan of your work for quite some time. It Ended Badly was my entree um, to your writing style, your very unique uh, writer's voice. And then randomly, I think that you were uh, telling everybody to get a grip during one of the many uh, Facebook arguments that happened yeah. in our oh, alumni group. Yeah, that happened and, uh, in yeah, our alumni group. That happens like every other day. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, Jen Wright, is it is Johnny? That's so cool. I got to well, get I'm glad something good came out of just that. Just so I can fanboy yeah. out, really. That's what mainly this is about, is me just telling you that I'm a huge fan and wanting to turn other people onto your work. And, and it's, uh, it's pretty terrific. So, uh, well, that is lovely to hear. So oh, thank no. you. No, my, my pleasure. Your books, your books have been terrifically entertaining uh, the last few years, and I read pretty much all your stuff. Like, oh, wow, great. Anywhere. So you're, you're, mainly, you're mainly like one of the three reasons I'm on Twitter right now. I was like, okay, if Jen's oh, got boy. something to out, <laughs> then I'm going to read it. So, well, it's a cesspool. So thank you for, for waiting. For it that. is. It's, it's swimming through raw sewage to kind of get to the yeah. lifeboat that is like your articles. It really is. Virgil <laughs> has a quote about uh, going through other people's poems and picking pearls out of done. So, uh, <laughs> so that's what Twitter is like. <laughs> so you have, I'm glad we started off talking about Twitter because you've been writing a lot um, over the last several months about uh, men's abuse of power <laughs> in politics and the entertainment business. And yes. uh, I have not read a single thing that I have disagreed with. However, in doing some of some research uh, in leading up to this interview, uh, I did find something and I want to just give you an opportunity to correct the record. Okay. okay. So in a 2013 YouTube video for the gloss.com, mm -hmm. uh, Wed Bed Dead, the title of the uh, uh -huh. video. You and your co-host, Ashley Cardiff, when mm -hmm. discussing what to do with a werewolf boyfriend, claim that <laughs> Seth Green's character in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, quote, got out and killed people. Now, what you're surely thinking of is season three, episode four of BTVS, when appears mm -hmm. Oz killed the character Jeff Walken, when in fact it was Buffy's new love interest, Scott's friend Pete, who was using a magical goop to make himself more manly for his girlfriend, who actually killed Jeff. So I just want to give you an opportunity uh -huh. To, to take publicly that back. apologize to, to publicly Buffy apologize to, because I, uh, at the end of the day, what you did is you chose to have a successful, erudite, and entertaining professional writing career instead oh, of based off of destroying well, this man. Rather than, rather than rewatching Buffy the Vampire Slayer and having a very niche podcast with very few people to listen to. So uh, I'm not questioning your life decisions, <laughs> but I want to make I want to point out that I, the only person Oz ever killed. Uh, in Buffy was Veruca, which was the she-wolf, and the only reason he killed her was because she attacked Willow. So, okay. well, I guess we just proved that false allegations do happen. <laughs> <laughs> <They do. laughs> 
<laughs> That's not where I was going with that. But I just, I just you, whenever anybody mentions Buffy, I've got to try to work that into the podcast somehow. And I, I'm so glad. I am always trying to talk about Buffy. very rarely happens when you're talking about like Aristotle and you can work that in. Oh, uh, did you, I don't know if you knew Mr. Harrell at St. John's, but he was also a huge Buffy fan. So if, uh, if you keep in touch with any of the professors from St. John's, you'll want to, you'll want to take that up with him. <laughs> So let's talk about St. John's. How, how did you end up at St. John's? Why St. John's, oh, the choice well, for Jen Wright? I, uh, I felt it was really important to read the books that were on uh, the St. John's curriculum. And I think I also knew myself well enough to know that I was never going to sit down of my own volition and read all of Herodotus. Um, or if I was, I was going to try to get through it as fast as possible and uh, not talk to anyone about it. <laughs> So, um, so I guess I saw St. John's as something that would force me to read the great works of Western literature in a way that I almost certainly never would at any other point in my life. And, uh, and it did do that. And uh, I think that is beneficial if only so that when people like Steve Bannon say, I'm an intellectual, I've read Thucydides, you can think I know a lot of dumb people who have read Thucydides. That's not true. <laughs> so it, it adds some, some color and depth to your writing for Bizarre.com when, when you're talking about politics. It, it does. Um, it's actually, it, it does surprise me how often I can find something from the classics that kind of ties into our political situation today. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I feel like we each, we have slightly different approaches in that you're doing it to like, you know, uh, elucidate key factors about the human condition and politics mm -hmm. you know, through a large yeah. outlet, through a large audience. And I just do it to like be pretentious at parties. Oh, well, so, I mean, um, look, I often tell people that we got a degree in cocktail party conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm probably gonna. That's that was that joke is definitely better than my Buffy joke. Oh, I mean, I think the Buffy joke was. We we learned some things. We learned some things about false allegations. Um, so I want to I want to talk about. You know, you said that you wouldn't have done it otherwise. But you know, the first book that I read of yours was it ended badly, mm -hmm. and thirteen of history's worst breakups. There is a ton of historical detail in here. You didn't have to write this book. You didn't have to like do that, but you obviously spent a ton of time researching the history behind. I especially love the Borges chapter, obviously. Oh, it's great, uh, right? One of my favorites. Yeah. But, you know, you spent so much time researching this and the the other pieces, like the voice that you have. <laughs> like it, I, I'm tr I tried to find several excerpts uh, to kind of give folks a taste. I think you're just going to have to trust me on this because what you do so wonderfully is this exquisite detail of situations and issues and everything else. And then just these little asides, you know, at the end, like I, there's, there's one chapter, which I, I, it's actually in the Borgia chapter where you're talking about the comedy of errors and how similar some of the Borgia's uh, situation was to the comedy of errors. And just as a side note, you write, I also hate Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> I do. And I, in parentheses, I also hate Shakespeare. <laughs> in parentheses, I know that this disclosure may change the terms of our imaginary friendship, but I think we can work past it. <laughs> so I, it's, I believe we can. Uh, but it's do, these, go ahead, I'm sorry. I do, um, I do try to write all my books as though, um, I am talking to a friend who for some reason cannot talk back. 
and just telling them interesting things that I've read about that day. So I like to think that I have an imaginary ongoing friendship with all of the readers. Well, uh, you, you said in an interview with uh, Paste Magazine when mm-hmm. It Ended Badly came out that you're, you're trying to write this like an advice column. Oh, yeah. But I think to the same degree, though, like the the amount of personalization, the amount of personal color that you bring to your books, like this, you know, imaginary friendship that we're having mm-hmm. and disclosing that you don't like Shakespeare adds a depth to your writing that you just don't find anywhere else. Like, how did you find this writer's voice of yours? Well, for me, I think a lot of it was growing up with uh, kind of getting my news from people like Stephen Colbert and... Um, John Stewart. And I grew up in a generation that I don't think ever thought that being funny meant that you weren't smart. Uh, I've always assumed that the funniest person in the room is generally the smartest person in the room. So, and growing up watching those shows, I, I could be watching John Stewart when I was like 12 years old. And I didn't really know very much about politics, but I knew that John Stewart was going to keep it funny for me and he was going to give me enough laughs that I could learn about the political situation and still have a really good time while I was doing that. And I think that's also what my best history teachers did in school growing up. Uh, They were really funny guys who uh, could like make fun of defenestration and uh, which, you know, is just a laugh riot. And uh, you don't see that very much in history books. And that's kind of peculiar to me because most of what's happening in history is motivated by ridiculous human emotion. Uh, Just so many people given absolute power and acting very outrageously with it. I think think the Eleanor of Aquitaine chapter is great in that regard and it ended badly. I like the Eleanor uh, chapter. I was I was rereading the Norman Mailer chapter. Uh, oh yeah, that guy. Oh, um, he's the worst. Yeah, which which you say in the book is like Norman Mailer is literally the worst person in this book, which yeah. is pretty surprising because there's a lot of terrible stuff that goes. I on know. In the book. Uh, and you're like, no, Mailer, he is the worst. And I'm I, I'm just gonna take your word for. It. I'm just gonna go with it and say like, okay, she's studied this stuff better than I have. So I've thought about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I strongly believe Norman Mailer is the worst. I actually got um, an email from somebody who was doing a class project in high school on It Ended Badly and asked if I could tell them what the thesis of my book was uh, for their essay. And I told them the thesis is Norman Mailer is the worst. He's not. He's right about how that guy sucks. Your teacher says that's not right. Tell them they're wrong. Tell them you got it from me. <laughs> So, that, so you're you're trying to create another generation of, of Jennifer Wrights that will, I'm trying to you know, spread the word. Yeah, the word. Uh, yeah. No, he uh, stabbed his wife in the heart, and uh, supposedly he did it because she told him he was no Dostoevsky, and it was at a party where he was running for mayor of New York, mm-hmm. and he stabbed his wife in the heart, and then he told all the party guests to just leave her there. Uh, they carried her to the hospital, and the next day he went on a morning show where they talked about how New York should institute a jousting competition in the inner city so that young men could kill each other and release their frustrations. And uh, he got away with all of it. Uh, His wife didn't press charges for the good of their children. Uh, She died in poverty and Norman Mailer kept complaining about prizes 
he didn't win because he stabbed his wife in the heart one time. <laughs> As, it was just an era there where, like in the 60s, more than maybe any other era, we kind of decided, okay, if men can write pretty well, they're allowed to kill their wives. <laughs> Uh, William Burroughs shot his wife in the head. And I didn't write about him because he seemed to feel bad about it. He seemed to feel like that was a bad decision. Some level of contrition will get you out of Wright's books. I got it. Well, on the upside, uh, at least nobody, um, you know, kind of in the arts world takes advantage of their power and does bad things. Oh, thank God, right? It's so great So everybody's learned the Norman Mailer lesson. And, you know, politics and art, they're just like, we're not doing this anymore, guys. Oh, that's God, yeah. Possibly, maybe not. Maybe I, not. I don't know. I, I hope things are uh, getting a little better. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, read, know. I read your stuff on Bizarre.com. It does uh, not seem like it's getting that much better. It's not great. It's <laughs> not great. Um, I worked in a newspaper where the editor-in-chief just routinely talked about the female employee's breasts. Just like who had a nice pair of jugs. So, uh, <laughs> so it's it, it's it, and you've you've channeled a lot of this to uh, writing, right? You've channeled a lot of this kind of visceral. Um, I don't want to say visceral emotion. I just want to say like the patently obvious. You've channeled a lot of the patently obvious. Hey guys, we shouldn't be doing this in, into your writing, and you've you're writing for a ton of different outlets now. You're I writing am. for Bizarre. Yeah, yes. Uh, how, like, I, I, it was hard for me to actually follow all the different places that are giving you gigs. Right? It's a lot, um, which is great, which is an amazing problem to have if you're a writer. So, um, yeah, I always think it's better to have too much work than too little work, kind of obviously, because we have a mortgage, we want to pay that. So, uh, so yes, base level, it's very good that I'm getting so much work right now. And I also, um, you know, I've been very lucky that I've been able to sort of move my career to write about topics that I'm very passionate about right now, because I started out writing about fashion and parties. And uh, now I write about politics every week. And that's a big shift and one that I almost certainly wouldn't have made without the 2016 election and the Me Too movement exposing so much that I feel is deeply wrong in the country right now and in our society. But, uh, you know, I, I guess um, I do dream of a day when, like, the country seems good again. Like, when Barack Obama is president again and I can write about restaurants or something. So it would be nice not to write about men who are sexually abusing women. Like, sometime, sometime when that happens. <laughs> we're never going to get there. We're never going to get there. I don't know if we are. Okay, yeah. Uh, I think what would be of, of tremendous interest, because I know you know, being a Johnny myself, like a lot of people kind of wish they had, um, wish they had made kind of a life like you have. And I'm sure it's not all like, you know, uh, hugs and puppy dogs. It is. It is fantastic. Uh, um, it is a lot of death threats. Uh, uh, my husband and I, he's a writer for Stephen Colbert. So we, uh, both get death threats very routinely. And, uh, there are, um, 
I, I believe he is on the Daily Stormer. I am not on the Daily Stormer. Oh. Yeah. I guess you haven't seen it yet. I guess I all, these things, all these books. I, I, I haven't really had, haven't made it these days. Yeah. No, until a Nazi hate group is going to come and kill us. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the death threats are, are a downside to yeah. our career. But, uh, no, I, I love what I do. I care about it a huge deal. I love sharing stories about history with people. I'm so lucky to make a living doing this. I get to work mostly in bed, and that's amazing. So everybody likes that. Tell us a little bit about that path, though. I mean, you went from St. I mean, you didn't, like, you know, jump on a bus the day after St. John's College and go to New York. and just, I did. Like, oh, you did? You know, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I jumped in a, a U-Haul driven by my mom and went to New York. And I had a very unrealistic assumption that Anna Wintour would hire me like immediately because why wouldn't she? I was writing for What's Up in Annapolis in college. So I was getting my clips. Um, and obviously that didn't happen. I, uh, I worked as an art model for a while. I worked in a pirate themed bar where I had to wear an eye patch over one eye while serving tequila shots, which means you have no depth perception when you're serving tequila shots. I feel like I've been to this bar, but- It's uh, called Wicked Willies. And if you are in, um, around Bleecker Street, they have a rickshaw where they will pick people up from other bars who are very drunk, tell them that they're taking them home and take them to Wicked Willies. <laughs> <laughs> I love the New York entrepreneurial spirit. There. Um, yeah, yeah. So if you ever got drunk around Bleecker Street, you were taken there. You thought you were going home, but they did not choose to do that. How did that. all these they pirates did... get in my hotel? Yeah, they did not honor their promise. Uh, no, Wicked Willis was um, an, uh, a, a terrible job, but it was also great. Uh, the owner was truly living his dream. He, he would periodically take everybody aside and be like, I dreamed of making a pirate theme bar and I did it. You can do it, I think. <laughs> That's a great pep talk. I mean, nobody <laughs> owns a pirate theme bar that just, I just happened into it. I just, yeah, it, is, it was a here. series of yeah, unfortunate put on, events. Put on to my patches. I, I won it in a poker game and <laughs> here I am. Well, it might actually happen, but. It might, I, I fully assume that is going to be the eventual fate of Wicked Willis. <laughs> So when you were when you were not <laughs> doing your pirate theme tequila shot serving, like yeah. what what were the first couple gigs that got you into the writing? Oh, world? How did you? Oh well, that? I got so lucky. Uh, I was out at I belonged to a group called the Accompanied Literary Society, that was supposed to help up and coming young writers, and instead was hosted by uh, just this unbelievably glamorous woman who I think very quickly realized that up-and-coming writers were not her cup of tea. And uh, instead started throwing dinner parties for Jay McInerney. So, uh, and treating him as though like he was gonna make it. <laughs> so I was at this party hosted by the Accompanied Literary Society for Jay McInerney. And I sat next to a man who would become my editor at the New York Post. And he was complaining about having to get up really early the next morning to interview Dominic Dunn, who he did not care about. And uh, I asked him if he was going to ask about the rumor that um, Frank Sinatra paid a waiter to punch him in the face. And he said, no. And I said, okay, are you going to ask about the rumor that the Kennedy family put out a hit on him after a season in purgatory? And he said, no. And I launched into my third helpful question. And he said, do you write? Do you want to go do this? You can, you can do that. 
Um, and I did. And it is an appalling interview. It is not good. Dominic Dunn was a saint. He talked to me for two hours. Most of it is about the television show Entourage, which <laughs> he watched. And I guess I just thought, like, this is how we're going to bond. This is how you make friends with your literary idols. You talk about, like, turtle liking it in the butt. So, uh, so it's, it's truly very bad. Uh, it is also the last interview that Dominic Dunn ever did because he died afterwards. <laughs> There, I, I, I'm going to work on the book title of like uh, Dead Dominic Dunn's last interview. Um, and it, it's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling just like a, you know, Frank Sinatra had a cold gay Talese kind of uh, yeah. homage with that. We'll, we'll work on it okay, yeah. <laughs> after this interview. So yeah. it's like, well, by, by the same token, however bad your interview with them is, I don't, you you only listened to one of my interviews on here, like, mm -hmm. and, and you weren't thinking after that, like, oh, I feel like I did pretty good on the Dominic Dunn interview now that I've heard Brian. <laughs> uh, that's definitely not true. I think at one point I just like shouted at this 70 year old man with stomach cancer. Like, remember when they talked about rim jobs? <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't make it all the way to the end of the Matt Young interview. Cause that's what we talked about for the last time. That's how it ends. Yeah. Great. Yeah. What two Marines um, talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, uh, it's a terrible interview, but uh, Dominic Dunn was unbelievably nice to me and they published it and people thought that because it was the last interview he ever did, it got recirculated every place. And some people thought that I must have like some sort of entree into literary New York because I was who Dominic Dunn chose to do his last interview with. Uh, so, uh, God bless him forever. I hope if I uh, meet him in the afterlife, I would ask him better questions. I owe him a huge debt of gratitude. But from there, I started doing more pieces for the New York Post, and then that kind of led to some other gigs, which led to me getting hired to be the deputy editor of the women's website, The Gloss, uh, which was founded by Elizabeth Spires, who had been one of the founders of Gawker. So it was, uh, it was exciting to work for her. It was, uh, it, and for a while, uh, before it got bought by a larger corporation, there was a time when we really got to do whatever we wanted with it, where it just got to be really weird. Like there are a lot of Mad Max jokes on that website, more than there should, I want to say a women's website, but more than there should be on any website was before Mad Max came back. So, uh, so yeah, we kind of got carte blanche to do whatever we wanted under the vague review of fashion and beauty. And uh, I actually worked with another Johnny on that. Uh, when I became editor-in-chief, Ashley Cardiff was my deputy editor, and she is off working on Fear, The Walking Dead now. So, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. She's uh, another lady Johnny from my class who... Uh, who is writing now and doing great stuff. That's super cool. So how, um, how did the books, like what was the genesis behind that? Uh, the books came out of the website. So okay. uh, in this website where we really got to write about whatever we wanted, I started sort of for my own fun doing this weekly column called Shelve Dolls that was about women that history had kind of forgotten, that had been incredibly famous in their own time, like Brenda Davis or the Marquesa Cassati, uh, who had been 
really well known, but who nobody remembers now or knows about now. And uh, um, I did not expect it to become the most popular feature on the website and to do so by like a factor of 10. So there were clearly a lot of people who wanted to read about historical women and to read about them in a way that was accessible and funny and where somebody was talking to them and it wasn't like a very academic history book. So uh, that is what ultimately led to It Ended Badly. And uh, at first um, the pitch was just like, well, what if I just write about like 10 historical women I like? And then we sort of had to have a way that we could have women's stories, but under a better umbrella topic than just, I think these women are cool and I think you should know about them. I do feel like in all of my books, there is one chapter that like technically probably shouldn't be there. Like, uh, like Timothy Dexter in It Ended Badly, he does not belong. There's a lobotomies chapter in Get Well Soon. Lobotomies are not a disease. Uh, everybody who's called me out on that is right. I just really wanted to write about them. I think they're really interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I personally will grant you as much creative leniency as you'd like, just Thank because you. the, the content, regardless of the topicality, is, is highly entertaining and Thank you. interesting. So you're, you're actually working on a book right now, speaking of uh, famous in their time women, I Madame Restel. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I've got, I should say, um, I've got one book that is another small illustrated book uh, coming out this spring with Lawrence King Publishing. It's called We Came First, Romantic and Sex Advice from Ladies in History. And it's, uh, you know, really makes you feel like uh, Julia Child was making some good choices with, with her dating and sex life. It's written like uh, Dear Abby, but all the answers are from people like Zelda Fitzgerald or Cleopatra. And sometimes they give very, very bad advice. And I, uh, I like that in the book. <laughs> So that should be out this spring. And then the other longer book that I'm working on now is about Madame Restel, who was a very well-known female abortionist in 1840s New York. She was an immigrant. She was a widow. She started out as a seamstress. Her story is very, very similar to a lot of women from this period where there's this huge influx of people into cities with the industrialization of the country. And it's also a time when you've got 30,000 working women in New York, suddenly a pretty healthy percentage of like at least three fourths of the workforce in cotton mills and textile mills were women. And uh, suddenly a lot of women are working. In 1848, there's the Seneca Falls Convention. Women start campaigning for suffrage and there's also no place for unwanted children. Most cities had, um, if you went to Vienna or France or England, there would be asylums and orphanages and birthing homes, I think, in Vienna, where if you were unmarried and you became pregnant, you could go and you could stay in a birthing home and have kids and they would take them. And there was nothing like that in New York. You'd just lose your job and become a prostitute. So... And uh, prostitutes on average only lived four years. And I had to look that up because I thought like, maybe prostitution seems like the way to go because they're working 16 hours in the factory. Maybe, maybe that's better. Uh, it's not, it's not, it was, it was horrible. 
and children were shipped away on things like orphan trains. Uh, Ninety percent of the kids died in their first year if they came from impoverished homes. Parents had to drug them to keep them quiet with Godfrey's cordial, <laughs> guaranteed to silence your infant because it's made out of opium. Um, so, uh, so Madame Rostel said, hey, you know what? what I think there's a need for. I think I should market birth control and abortions. She became one of New York City's first female independent millionaires. Um, and, you know, with her, there's also this huge pushback against um, abortion. And partly it's because... Uh, because Madame Restel was doing a ton of abortions really openly and talking about it all the time. Um, but also partly it's uh, probably not a coincidence that a, uh, I believe it's a cardinal wanted to buy a house across from St. Paul's. And he gave a speech where he like glancingly like delivered a low blow towards Madame Restel. He was like, we've got some sinners in this city like Madame Restel. So Madame Restel bought his house. She outbid him by like double the price uh, and opened an enormous mansion right across from the church where she performed abortions. And it is not a coincidence that you start seeing a real uptick in criticism of abortion around the time that Madame Restel bought away uh, the Cardinal's house. There is a wonderful uh, tract by a bishop written about 20 years after her death that, I, like, theoretically, it's about the evils of abortion, but it's really just about her house. It's about, like, you're seeing this house and you probably think it's nice. Well, the devil lives here. You see the marble? That's devil's stone. See all those carvings? Devil's like carvings. It's, uh, it's like a solid 10 pages just about how, like, Sounds, sounds pretty fucking nice. Sounds and he's nice. mainly just upset that he doesn't have it. This is probably yeah. It's just the church being very angry about uh, them not having it. So, um, I'm kind of interested in her being a morally ambiguous figure. I think uh, I, I think I, I'm very pro-choice. I mean, it's my inclination to say she never killed a single patient. Seems like women really needed abortions. Uh, she did her job really well. She uh, charged rich women $100, poor women $20. She had like a sliding scale. Uh, by all accounts, she was a very good, very attentive, very caring doctor. She was also absolutely in it for the money. I see nothing really in Madame Christelle's writings. I mean, I think she has like a philosophical thing of like, well, this be better for everyone. But uh, she's, she's definitely doing this because she wants to be really, really rich. And I don't know if... Uh, that negates anything she was doing. Um, I think it certainly made her a more prominent target for journalists of the time and for politicians of the time. Anthony Comstock was the one who ultimately managed to catch her, uh, but only after they instituted a ton of laws saying that you couldn't even talk about birth control. And, you know, Margaret Sanger goes on to say that Anthony Comstock is responsible for the deaths of countless women. So... Uh, so yes, he's a fascinating figure and uh, so much a product of this time and so much someone who really set the debate that we're still having uh, in the 21st century, let alone the 19th century. So, uh, so, I'm, so I'm fascinated reading about her right now and also just reading about what life was like for women in the 1840s in New York. 
And spoiler, it, it was bad. It was pretty bad. But it was also kind of great. It was also, uh, there, were, um, there were some really successful, fascinating women, like the Grimke sisters, who were becoming known as prominent speakers through suffragettes rising to power. The first woman had been appointed the editor of the New York Review of Books. There's this outpouring of fascinating literary women. There were also some... Like, most prostitutes had a bad time. Some of them had a great time. Some of them were, like, going to meet Queen Victoria, like, hanging out with her from New York. So, uh, so yeah, so it's a book about Madame Restel, but it's also a book about uh, the limitations on women at the time and what happened when women started fighting against those limitations. I'm greatly looking forward to it. I, I I have all your books. I've read all your books. Um, the I mean, especially for Johnny's. Like, I mean, the, the core audience of this pod is Johnny's. So, Johnny's, if you right. haven't read her stuff, you need to read her stuff because the the layers of historical detail, um, the the way that you write from a very modern voice that is illuminating and entertaining but also is you're writing about timeless subjects. You know, you're writing about love and loss. You're writing around, um, you know, fighting disease, or you're writing about dealing with, you know, unwanted pregnancies or, you know, flammable uh, fake satin, you know, whatever so it is. So much flammable clothing. <laughs> whatever it is, it's, it's, it's timeless stuff. And so it's, it, it, it's not surprising that you were a Johnny and that you're like, okay, I can tie Homer to the Sidonies to this weird hat that, yes, you know, yeah. that we had in like 1920s. Like I can do that. Um, but your, your skill uh, is, is, is quite amazing. Your, your writer's voice is quite amazing. So just a plug from uh, your humble podcast host to, oh, to check out so Jennifer much. Wright's books. Um, and the name of your new book one more time. For, oh, um, uh, We Came First. We Came so First. That okay. is the illustrated one. Yes. So okay. if you want a fun stocking stuffer for someone for next year, I guess, because I don't know how time works. Uh, you buy that in the spring and then give it to someone. And what's the best place for people to follow you? Oh, uh, probably on Twitter. I'm there under Jen Ashley Wright. Uh, okay. If you like people being mad at Donald Trump every day, that's that's your spot. <laughs> You're the only. You've carved out a very unique niche there with being angry at Donald Trump. Um, it turns out there's some other people too. There's some other people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, no, your, your writing's great. Your, your modern political writing is great. Your books are great. So highly recommend it. And thank you, Jennifer Wright, for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. This is lovely.